Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lift it up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the Gospel Record of Luke. The Gospel Record of Luke and chapter number 16. The Gospel Record of Luke and chapter number 16. <coughs> if you remember in the context of what Jesus Christ has been going through, that Jesus Christ started off with a dinner with the Pharisees starting at Luke chapter number 14. And in that we have seen different interactions where Jesus Christ is talking to the Pharisees and giving them one more opportunity, trying to warn them of the destruction yet to come. Then they would criticize him. They would try to humiliate him. Then Jesus would make a mention to the masses and try to explain to them what it means to be a true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then Jesus Christ would deal with the Pharisees as they give another snide comment. Then he would turn to his disciples and try to give them instructions and try to explain to them. And then the Pharisees would pipe up once again. And so this became a long interaction starting at Luke chapter 14, going through chapter 15, and once again going through chapter 16. And in Jesus Christ is once again dealing with the Pharisees. He's making a direct application. And what we're going to see is that he is actually going to be pleading and warning and begging the Pharisees to turn from the judgment to come. And in this, Jesus Christ gives a comparison between two people and not a parable and not a made-up story, but an actual historical event that occurs. And we find this mention and the gospel record of Luke chapter number 16. The gospel record of Luke chapter number 16 and notice with me as Jesus begins and continues to talk with the Pharisees. He's actually in mid speech to them in verse number 19. The gospel record of Luke chapter 16 in verse number 19. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen, and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores, and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments and seeing Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water, and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted, and thou art 
tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which wouldn't pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee, therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead... They will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. And if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, would you mark a phrase that we find in Luke 16, the gospel record of Luke chapter 16, and notice with me in verse 23, and in hell. And in hell. And if you don't mind, I'd like to entitle this message here, The True Beggar of Luke 16. The True Beggar of Luke 16. If you don't mind, let's go to the throne room of grace together and let's talk to God. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for you being a wonderful God. And as we come to you and open up the Bible, I'm asking that you would give us grace that you would give us mercy, that you would help us to have understanding now, that you would let us search our hearts and that we could see if we've accepted this grace, if there's ever been a time where we've accepted your forgiveness. And if not, Lord, that we would see the grim reality of this awful place called hell and that we would also allow this doctrine, this, this biblical account, this teaching to affect our life. And that we would respond to the reality of this awful place called hell. I'm asking that you would fill me with your spirit. I need you. And a message like this, it cannot be of my own strength, my own power, my own intellect. It cannot be. And I'm asking what you and you alone can do through your precious spirit to get your work accomplished. Give us grace. Give us understanding. Be with my mouth. Be with my tongue. Be with my thoughts. I hand them to you now. Just you guide you direct, you be God. In your name we pray and thank you in advance. Amen. As the Lord Jesus Christ is dealing with Pharisees, Jesus Christ gives them a horrible historical account. May I remind you as we start off that this is not a parable. How do we know that it's not a parable? Because Jesus actually uses a person's name in here. A man by the name of Lazarus. If it was just an imaginary story, then there would be no need for Jesus to give a name. We also understand that he says a certain rich man and a certain beggar. These are the type of words used to kind of show that this is speaking about a real historical person. The reason why the Lord Jesus Christ does not give us a name for the rich man because it's already bad enough that this man went to hell. How would you like to have one of your ancestors listed by name that they went to this awful place called hell? He made it so it was general. It was part of his graciousness. But yet we find that this is not a parable and it's not a story. It's an historical account given for the purpose of warning others about this reality of this awful place. 
an awful place called hell. And in this account, Jesus Christ compares and contrasts two individuals. One is a beggar by the name of Lazarus, and the other one is a rich man. Now, Lazarus was someone we could find from this account is someone who had trusted God's promises sometime in his life. We know that outwardly he was a beggar, but we see that somewhere along the line that he had trusted God's promises. What are God's promises entailed in here? Well, first of all, that we're sinners, that every single one of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that because of this, that we owe God a great price. But God had made a promise to God's people that he would send a deliverer, a Messiah, someone to pay the price. We know historically we have enough, um, enough information given to us that this is the Lord Jesus Christ. But the people back then had to trust the promises the same as we do. They just trusted in God's promises that were going to happen in the future. We trust God's promises of things that have already occurred. But there was some time where he had personally asked God to forgive him of his sins. Accepted God's payment that God had made a way of escape. He sent a lamb to be slain for him. And sometime in this life, this beggar had accepted Christ as his Savior. But we observe that just because you accept Jesus as your Savior doesn't mean that your life is all of a sudden roses. That just because you accept Christ as your Savior, you don't live in the palaces. We could see here, here's a man who's believed in God's promises, that we don't know the situation, we don't know what happened, we don't know what uh, came of it, but we do know that because of something in his life, he was now begging. He was now dependent on others to feed him. We know that he was poor in health. The Bible describes that he was so poor in health that he laid at the rich man's gates, begging for bread, and he was so poor of health that Dogs came and licked his sores. So we know that he had some type of health thing going on. And so just because you're saved doesn't mean that it's going to be reflected that you're living the best life and you have the best money and that you have the happiest thing and rainbows are always shining on you. We understand that anybody can accept Christ as their Savior and there's still things in their life that not everything is always good. Not everything is bright roses. God never promises nor guarantees this. But here is a man who was saved, a man who was trusted in God's promises, who did not enjoy the best of life while he was on earth. He was a beggar. He waited at the rich man's uh, gates, waiting to eat the man's trash, whatever he would throw out, just saying, I just need something, and because this man has enough, and he often throws things out, this is the best place to go ahead and grab something to eat. Maybe the the rich man from time to time would throw him some scraps. Maybe he just had to dig through the man's trash. But he said, this is where I stay. This is where I'm at. Because this is the best hope that I have. To get some substance. Because of his health and because of the things going on. Here's a man that on earth during his time. Did not have the best life. But he did have God's promises. In comparison, you have another man, a rich man, who had never trusted God's promises, who had never personally accepted what God had promised and offered to him of eternal life. But outwardly, he looked like he had the best life. He is a rich man. Notice what the Bible speaks about in verse 19. There was a certain rich man that was clothed in purple. So not only is he rich, he is super rich. Back then, everybody's clothes, for the most part, looked drab and gray. 
It was not pretty. We can look in the audience here and we have greens, we have blues, we have plaid. You have different colors out there. But back then, for clothes to be a different color, they had to be dyed. And one of the rarest colors was purple. Purple would often be a dye that would be drawn out from a certain type of slug. And it would be a process of taking the slug, taking the dye out, and then going through the uh, process of dyeing some clothes from it. Only extremely rich people with extra money were able to dress in colors as extravagant as purple. And purple was the rarest of all of the colors available for that day. So here's a man. He's a rich man. He is so wealthy he could afford the best clothes, the best everything. Life is going pretty good for him, at least while he's on earth. And sure, he tried to make his life good. He tried to be a help. We're not saying he was a bad man. We're not saying he was an evil man. He, he, more than likely, he saw the beggar outside of his gates and he felt sorry for him. He probably provided food. He was probably generous to those that are around him. We're not speaking about an evil man. We're not talking about a murderer. We're not talking about a rapist. We're talking about a man who was rich. And the only thing that he did not do was he did not accept Christ to be his savior. He did not accept the promises that God had offered him concerning eternal life. And it came to pass that both of these men died. The Bible mentions that the, that the beggar died first. It said in verse 22, And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. Now this is a pictorial type thing that he was carried by angels and he was brought to paradise. He was brought to where the saints were. He was enjoying the promises. He's now in a place where he no longer has to hurt, where he's no longer poor, where he's taken care of and provided. That's what we're looking forward to. You know, when we speak about heaven, why do we want to go to heaven so badly? Up in heaven, there's no more sickness. That's something to look forward to for those of us who have ailments and afflictions. No more sickness. Up in heaven, what makes it worth going to? Up in heaven, there's no more sorrow. I'm so thankful that one of the promises in the Bible, that when we go to eternity future in heaven forever, that he dries all the tears. You know, there's a lot of reason to have tears on this earth now. Whether it's broken hearted, whether watching the atrocities of things happening, watching how things are not fair, even our own pain. There's lots of reason to cry and to have tears. But in heaven, there's no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears. Oh, what a wonderful place. We're looking forward to it. It's a place of joy and happiness. It's a place of peace. It's a place of no more wars. There's so much to look forward to it. But what really makes heaven worth going there is that God is there. And we get to spend all eternity with a God who created us and a God who loved us. And so here is the beggar, Lazarus, who in his life while he was on earth was poor. He's no longer poor. While he was here on this earth, he was full of sickness. And now he is a healthy, brand new redeemed body. While he was on this earth, he was alone, isolated, begging. No one was there who cared for his soul. No one helped him out. And now he's up in glory. He's in paradise at that time. And he is enjoying the benefits of being with the saints, including Abraham and including God. What a wonderful thing for him because he had trusted in God's promises. 
But on the flip side of that, we see the rich man died also. And he was buried. And notice in verse 23, and in hell he lifted up his eyes. You understand that the moment that you take your last breath, the next moment you are in eternity somewhere forever. One moment you're breathing air, the second moment you're lifting up your eyes. And in the case of here, here is a man who was wealthy in life, who had everything he wanted. He had friends, he had influence, he wasn't a bad person, but he had never trusted the promises that God had given to him. And he lifted up his eyes and he was in hell. And while he was there, he was already in torment. And what we learn about this man that we study, the rich man, is that we find out that in hell, he was the one who was the true beggar. The word beggar carries with it the idea to plead, to ask, the old word to pray. And we could see that he was the true beggar because there are several times that he had prayed, that he had begged, and that he had asked the wrong questions to the wrong people at the wrong time. And he was the true beggar. And from this account in Luke chapter 16, I would like to see and show you from the Bible in this historical account that Jesus Christ had told us about the true beggar of Luke 16 and the things that he had asked for incorrectly. The very first thing I'd like to point to you is that this rich man, he prayed to the wrong person. He prayed to the wrong person. Notice if you don't mind as we see the biblical account in Luke chapter 16 and verse 22. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lift up his eyes being in torments. And seeing Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am tormented in this flame. What we see here is the first thing that he did. The first wrong action is that he prayed to the wrong person. Here he's begging Abraham. He's saying, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Now, whereas he was able to interact at this time with Abraham, Abraham had no power to change the circumstances of this rich man. He had no power to do anything about the location or the torments of this rich man. There was nothing that Abraham could do because Abraham himself was powerless to change. He prayed to the wrong person. Well, if Abraham's the wrong person, who is the right person? The right person is God himself. That it is God that it gives the judgment. It is God who sets the standard. It is God that we have to give an account for. It is God who created heaven and earth. It is God who set the rules of holiness. It is God that is the one who determines our eternal destination. 
that Abraham is powerless to do something about it. May I say that the saints are powerless to do anything about your eternal destination. Mary herself is powerless to do anything about your eternal destination. The Pope cannot do anything whether you go to heaven or where you go to hell. That some preacher cannot tell you and change your eternal destination. That the right person to ask is God. Through his son Jesus Christ. Who died on the cross to pay for our sins. You understand that when we stand before God. He is the one who sets God the rules of holiness. The Bible says and gives us what we call the Ten Commandments. And God says in order to be in heaven. In order to be with him forever. You must be perfect. And in order to prove that you are not perfect, God gives us His Ten Commandments. One of those Ten Commandments says, Thou shall not bear false witness. We could say it like this, don't tell lies. Well, let's just do a survey. How many of you have ever told a lie before? Raise your hand. Well, if you're not raising your hand, you're a liar. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. God says in order to be with Him in heaven, we have to be perfect. But we've broken one of God's rules. Well, let's just see if there's anything else. The Bible says in the Ten Commandments that we are to honor our father and our mother. We could say it this way. We're supposed to obey our folks. Well, let's do a survey. Let's check and see how we're doing. How many have ever disobeyed your folks? Raise your hand. Parents are looking at their kids to make sure they're raising their hands. You understand Every single one of us are guilty of breaking God's laws. There is none righteous, no, not one. God says in his rules of holiness that in order to go to heaven, we have to be perfect. And we have to be perfect each and every time. Let's just say for illustration's sake that in order to go to heaven, we have to hit the bullseye each and every time. So let's put a dartboard in the very back of the church. And... Put the rules that in order to go to heaven, you have to hit the bullseye every time you throw it. And we'll get a, th- a couple of us to line up. Let's say that we grab someone and they throw and they miss it just by this much. Someone gets up and they throw it and they hit the outside edge. And then I get and I throw it and I hit the side wall. Now according to the rules, who is going to heaven? Nobody. You see, it doesn't matter if you missed it by this much or you missed it by this much. The qualifications in order to go to heaven is that you have to be perfect. That is the standard. And as long as we've done one little sin, told one little lie, disobeyed our folks one little time, we are no longer perfect And we don't deserve to be with God. And we don't deserve to go to heaven. By the way, it only makes sense. Because if you set something that's not perfect. And you put it in a perfect place. It would no longer be perfect. Think about the Garden of Eden. God made this perfect place for man to dwell. How many sins did it take for them to ruin their spot there? One. And because of that one sin, God had to remove them from the Garden of Eden. Because that's all it takes to make something not perfect. Is one little sin. Now, by the way, this isn't my rules of holiness. This is God's rules of holiness. He's the one that set it up. He's the one who made the requirements. He's the one that set it up. Well, someone may say, well, listen here. I'm not a bad person. 
Well, let's just imagine for illustration's sake that I'm a great person. That all I do is sin three times a day. So in one day, I mess up three times. I break the speed limit. I get aggravated at my wife and I tell a little white lie. Now, if that's all I did in one day, that's living a great life. May I unfortunately say that that's a better life than I live and I'm a pastor. Three little sins a day. But you know, just sinning three times a day, at the end of one year, you would have racked up 1,000 sins. At age 20, just sinning three times a day, that would be 20,000 sins. At age 50, just sinning three times a day, that would be 50,000 sins to your account. Now, if I stood before God, who requires absolute perfection, and I stood before Him, living a great life, only sinning three times a day, and stood before Him with 50,000 sins to my account, would I look that good anymore? I would not. And God has set the rules of holiness. But let me tell you something else. That God has made a way of escape for every single person. That God did not want to see a single person go to that awful place called hell. So what God did is he robed himself in flesh. And came on this earth as the Lord Jesus Christ. And he lived the same life that you and I lived. He went through the same temptations, the same troubles, and the same heartbreaks. Then Jesus died being perfect. Jesus never sinned. He never did anything wrong. He never told a little white lie. He was perfect. And he died on the cross because he was able to pay for your price. Because he didn't have to pay for his own. He died on the cross, was buried, and on the third day he rose again. When Jesus rose the third day, it proved two things. It proved that Jesus was indeed God. It also proved that God was satisfied with the payment that was made. And so God has made it so anyone could go to heaven because he paid the price. We can't get to heaven on our own. But the person that we should ask is Jesus. The Bible says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Save from what? Save from the penalty I owe God. Save from the punishment that I owed Him. Save from that awful place called hell. Jesus paid that price for me. And God has given it to an eternal, as an eternal life and present it to us as a gift. The Bible says in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but... The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You understand? The right person to ask is Jesus. The right person to ask is God. And all you have to do is the best you know how. Say, Lord, save me. Forgive me of my sins. I know I'm a sinner. I recognize I deserve hell. And you promised me if I asked you, you'd give me eternal life. So the best I know how, I'm asking for that gift. That is the right person to ask. Unfortunately, this rich man who was the true beggar in this story prayed to the wrong person. Abraham could do nothing to change the circumstances the rich man fell into. But let me tell you, there is someone that you can pray to who can change your eternal destination. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. That is God himself. The God who sets the circumstances. The God who sets the, uh, the scenario. The God who sets the rules. The God who does the judging. He's the one that we can ask. And he's the one that can change it. I'm so thankful that we can ask the right person. Unfortunately, this rich man begged 
the wrong person. What else about this rich man? Why was he the true beggar of this story? Well, he had prayed to the wrong person. He also prayed in the wrong place. He prayed in the wrong place. We could see in verse 23 these frightening words, and in hell. May I tell you that hell is a real place? Now maybe I could tell you something that will be shocking to you. I hate the doctrine of hell. I hate the doctrine of hell. You said, but you're a preacher. I understand. But let me tell you the doctrine of hell is an awful doctrine. Then why do you believe it if you hate it and think it's so awful? Because the Bible says it's true. And I have to believe what the Bible says. I wish we could erase this doctrine from the Bible. I wish there wasn't a real place where real people go to. But because the Bible says so, we have to believe it. And the Bible says quite a bit about hell as it describes hell. May I tell you some of what the Bible says about this awful place? In the book of Revelation chapter 20, Bible describes hell as a lake of fire. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 33 that it is a devouring fire. The Bible says in Revelation 20, it is also a bottomless pit. What does that mean? It's a place where you feel like you're falling forever and ever and ever. You can never get oriented. You're never on solid ground. There's always this disorienting feeling that not only do you have the flames and not only do you have the fire, but the Bible as it describes the eternal place of the lake of fire. It's a place where you are always disoriented, where you never have solid ground to hold on to. You're falling forever and ever. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 33, it describes it as everlasting burnings. The Bible says in Matthew chapter number 13, it's a furnace of fire. In fact, as Jesus Christ is making mention, that when people said, Jesus, what is hell like? Jesus said, come with me. And on the south side of the city of Jerusalem was a little valley. And in this valley was the place where the city had begun to throw their trash. And over the centuries of throwing out their trash, that trash heap would get bigger and bigger and bigger. Until finally got the, someone got the bright idea, let's just burn the trash heap. And because trash was always getting put into it, and it had a big pile, it was a trash a thing that was always burning. And they had maggots and worms crawling all over the place. And whenever someone would come and say, Jesus, what is hell like? He said, come here. And it would point to the valley called Hinnom. And say, that is what hell is like. Let me tell you, if hell was like the grave, Jesus would have pointed to the grave. If, if hell is nothingness, he would have pointed out to the void of sky. But when people said, Jesus, what is hell like? He said, the valley of Hinnom. The place where the fire never stops. The place where the worm dieth not. If you want to see what hell is like, that is what it is like. Jesus said it is a place of a furnace of fire. In Luke 16, we can see that it is a place of torments. Notice how bad the torments are in Luke 16 where we're at. 
in verse number 24. And he, the rich man, cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am tormented in this flame. Hell is so bad that just one drop of water, if you could take your finger and put it in water and put it over someone and just watch that little, that, that drop get bigger until it finally falls. Hell is so much of a place of torment. It is so bad, so awful, that one little drop would seem like a relief in that awful place called hell. It is a place of torments. In the book of Revelation 16, it says it is a place where people curse God. What do you mean by that? That you know that people do not change their mind in hell? That in hell they still hate God. And they're still bitter with God. And they still aggravate it with God. It's a place where they said, how dare God do this? It's a place full of bitterness and hatred towards the creator who created them. The Bible says in Revelation 22, it is a place of filthiness. It's a place of filthiness. What do you mean by that? Will you understand that they still have a sin nature? Do you know in hell, the drunkard still desires another drink, but he can never have one. The person who's addicted to tobacco is going to crave another hit of tobacco and still never have that. Someone who's addicted to sexual things is always going to desire it, but never be able to have it. It's a place where filthy thoughts are still there and they still want their sin and they can never have it. It's a place in Matthew 22 or 12 where they'll never repent. That if they never trusted God and his promises in, before they go to hell, they'll never change their mind while they're in hell. The Bible says in Revelation 14, it is a place of no rest. You understand, in hell there's no passing out. There's no vacation. There's no breaks. And there's no sleeping. It is a place where the torment never stops. There is no rest. There is no getting out of it. There is no place of subsiding. It's the torture lasting forever and ever. In the book of Jude, it describes hell as a place of blackness forever. Scientists have studied as they mess with flame and light that different color light emitted from flames is a different temperature. And that the very hottest temperature they get produces what is like a black flame. Because it is so efficient, it doesn't have any waste products of light. It is the hottest flame. And so it burns and it does not give any light. And it is the hottest burn. And yet they are left in darkness forever. Feeling like they're always falling. Hearing the screams of people. Desiring and still hating God and desiring their sin. And not getting right. And never having any rest. The place the Bible describes hell in Revelation 16 is a place where they gnaw their tongues. Their torments and their misery is so miserable. That they chew on their own tongues. Because it is so awful. The Bible says... In Isaiah 33, 
that the breath will be a living flame. That fire is all around them and all in them. They are consumed with it. The Bible says in Matthew 25 that hell is a place prepared for the devil and his angels. Let me tell you, God never created hell for a single human to go there. He created hell to punish Satan and his demons. And if hell was made to punish eternal angels like Satan, how worse would it be for a human to go to a place created to punish Satan? It is an awful place. The Bible says in the book of Revelation 19, it is a place where people are cast in alive. That means they never die. They never stop living. They still have a body that feels pain. A body that feels agony. It just won't die. And they'll feel every little bit of it. The Bible says in Revelation 14, hell is a place where the smoke of the torments ascend up forever and ever. You know that there's never a stopping place for hell. They never get out. There's no release. In fact, a horrifying thought is this rich man who's mentioned in here has been burning in hell for 2,000 years. And there's no stopping. The Bible says in Luke 16, it's a place where you don't want your loved ones to go. Some people will jokingly say because they, they don't understand this doctrine, yeah, I'm going to go to hell and me and my friends, we're going to have a drinking party and we're just going to have a good time there. You will not. It will be a place where you don't want a single person to go there. You don't want them to join you. You don't want anyone to have to go through that agony. The Bible says in Revelation 21, it is a place of murderers, liars, fearful, and the abominable. Hell is an awful place. But hell is a real place. And the problem that this rich man had is that he prayed in the wrong place. Verse 24, and he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. You see that once you arrive in that place called hell, it's too late. Some people will try to put it off. Let me tell you that there is no getting out of hell. It is a real place. What made this rich man the beggar of this story? Well, he begged, he prayed to the wrong person. He begged, he prayed in the wrong place. He also begged, he prayed at the wrong time. We've already made mention of this, that in hell is the wrong place. But let me tell you that when you get to hell, it is too late. The time that you pray is before you go to that place. When I preach in prisons, the inmates understand this principle. You hire your lawyer before you go to court. You understand that you are already condemned already according to John chapter 3. We are already guilty. By the time you go to hell, that's where you go to be sentenced. That is you the sentencing of what you deserve. You're already found guilty. 
that you need to hire your lawyer and get things right before you go to a court. You could settle out of court. And that's what Jesus Christ has done for us. That Jesus Christ has paid the payment on our behalf. And that all we have to do is accept the pardon that he is offering to us. That we don't have to go to the execution. We don't have to go to this place of sentencing. That we could be freed now because he paid the price and he offered us a pardon. That we need to accept Christ before you go to heaven. One of the frightening statements that is repeated to me when I talk to people about their soul is they say, I'll just wait till I get to, till I die and I'll allow God to sort it out. It's already the wrong time. Now's the accepted time. I deal with people that frighten me even more. That say, I'll do it later. I just want to live my life now. I've got plenty of time. Let me tell you, tomorrow is not guaranteed for a single one of us. That you could leave this church service now. And you could get in a car accident. And that could be the end of your life here on this earth. You never know what could happen to you. You never know when your last breath may be. When I was a teenager, right after we graduated high school, a frightening thing happened to our class that just one month after graduation, someone who walked the stage with us, got his diploma, had an aneurysm and died in his sleep. And we had to attend this 18-year-old's funeral. Someone who had plans of what he was going to do with his life. Never knowing that when he laid his head down on the pillow that night, he would have never woken up. Even now, we have two people in our church who have an aneurysm. A blood vessel that's ready to burst. One of them has it in their brain in two different places. It's a ticking time bomb. The thing about aneurysms is most people don't even know when they would go off, or if, even if they had one. You have no guarantee of tomorrow. Now is the accepted time. Now is the time to accept God's gift. Why he's holding it out to you. God is giving a gift. Think about Christmas time. We're talking about gifts. During Christmas time, you have, see the tree, you have the presents under the tree, and you see a present that someone has given to you. You even know what's in it, that it's something that you want. And because you wanted it, they worked hard for it. They put in extra hours. They worked hard to get it for you. You know what it is. And when it comes time for Christmas time or your birthday, and they hand you the gift and open this up, you say, listen, I know what's in it. I know how hard you work for it. I don't feel like I'm worthy to open the gift. So you know what? Let's just set it here and uh, let me go get my wallet. Let me go pay you some money for it. Let me see if, uh, let me work, uh, uh, pay this off. And when I paid it off, like lay away, then I'll go ahead and open it up. Is that what the person who handed you the gift wants? Do they want you to go pay for it? What would they say? Listen, I don't feel worthy. I don't feel like I've done enough for this. How about this? Let me go mow your lawn for about two seasons and make sure it's done. And when I've, when I've got your lawn perfect and I've, I've upkept it, then I'll go ahead and open the present. Is that what they want for you? What if they say, listen here, I just don't feel like I've been nice enough for you. Know. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to call you every day and I'm going to tell you thank you. And I'm going to say how great you are. And, and, and when I finally feel like I've finally been nice enough to you, then I'll go ahead and open this up. Is that what they want? When they hand you the gift, they're expecting you to open it right then and there. 
to open it when it's offered to you. Not to put it off. Not to put it later. Now's the accepted time. That if you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, He's handing you the gift right now. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. That whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That God has given you a gift and now's the acceptable time. Now's the time to do it. And that it can be too late. And what made this rich man a beggar is that he prayed at the wrong time. It was too late. There was nothing he could do. He could not get out of this place. What else made this man a beggar? This rich man who in life had enjoyed everything had now been reduced to a beggar. Well, he prayed to the wrong person. He prayed in the wrong place. He prayed at the wrong time. He also prayed for the wrong messenger. He prayed for the wrong messenger. Notice what he said. Now, he realized he wasn't getting out, nor did at any time did he ever ask to get out. He was stuck and he knew he couldn't get out. He knew he was in torments and there was another thing he knew. He did not want his five brothers to come join him. So notice what he gives a request to. Listen, I can't get out and obviously I can't get relief. How about this? Can you go send Lazarus? Can you go tell him to go tell my brothers? Can you let him rise from the grave? Can you let him appear and say that eternity is real? There is a real place called heaven and a real place called hell. Can you go tell him to warn my brothers? Can you go send him? Notice what he said in verse number... <laughs> excuse me. In verse number 27. Then he, this rich man who now became a beggar, said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him, Lazarus, to my father's house. For I have five brethren. That he may testify unto them. Lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham saith unto him. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them the brothers hear them. He says listen. They got a Bible. And they could read the Bible for themselves. The Bible has the answer. That is what they need. But the rich man said, no, 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 verse 30. And he said, nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, then they would repent. And he, Abraham, said unto him, the rich man who became a beggar, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, if they won't hear the Bible, if they won't obey the Bible, neither will they be persuaded, though one, be, uh, one rose from the dead. So think about this. Let's just imagine that somehow it can't happen. But let's imagine somehow that someone was able to come back from the dead. So let's imagine that as we're having a church service. And we're preaching and we're pleading for someone to respond to God's word. That all of a sudden from the side wall a ghost comes and walks through. And goes ooh heaven's real. Hell is real. Do you think we'd be inclined to listen? Most of us would be inclined to jump out the door, and get away as far as we could. We would not be inclined to listen to a ghost if we actually saw one. We wouldn't say, oh, listen, can I get a pad and paper? I want to take some notes. That would not be our instinct. Our instinct would be run away from the dead ghost thing. I don't want to be here. Well, we know that in today's pop culture, zombies 
are a big thing. So let's imagine that the guy actually rose bodily from the grave, not just a ghost. Let's just say that he actually popped up from the grave, knocked open, got the casket open, dug out, and he's partly decomposed, the dirt all over. The first thing you do when you see one of those would not say, here's my pad and paper. Let me discuss how are you feeling right now. Do you have any messages you want me to deliver? That would not be our first instinct. Our first instinct is let, let him get away, protect my brain. I'm going somewhere that's not here. I'm going far away. Possibly getting my guns, my family, and going up to northern Wisconsin where they can never find me and there's no people. Our first instinct would not be, can I hear your message? You must have something important to say. Can I have an interview with you? Now we understand as we think about that, that if someone came as a ghost or someone came from the grave, that our first instinct would not to be to listen to them. It would have a powerful impact in our life, but it would not be to draw us closer to the Lord. There'd be a curiosity that'd be going on, but it would distract from the message rather than point people to the message. You know, God has loved us so much that he has made it clear and plain and has given us the word of God. And that all you have to do is hear what God says and hear the truth. And that's all you have to do is accept God's promises. And God's word is real and says there is a real place called heaven. The Bible says that hell is real. There is a real place where real people die and go there. The good news is not a single person has to go there. That God has paid the price already. And all you have to do is personally accept for yourself that you're a sinner. We have to admit that. I'm a sinner. And because of my sin, I deserve to go to that awful place called hell. That's a true statement. It doesn't matter how good you are. All of us deserve hell. I'm a preacher. I deserve hell. The good news is I don't have to go there. Jesus paid the price for me. And all I have to do is accept him as Savior. Now, think about this. Here is a man in hell who wants a messenger to go and tell his family. A ghost is not the right messenger. A zombie is not the right messenger. Who then is the right messenger? Any of us with the Bible. We are the right messengers. Think about this. There may be someone in hell right now that is praying, begging for someone to go deliver a track to their loved ones. There is someone in hell that would love for us to put a John and Romans on their loved one's door. There is someone in hell that would love for us to go tell someone the truth. And that they don't have to go to that awful place. There is someone in hell right now who would wish that we would invite someone to church. So they can hear a message like this on hell. Let me tell you this is not a fun message to hear. And it's not a fun message to preach. But it is a necessary message. And if someone heard this message today they would get saved. And change that eternal destination. And there's someone in hell that wish their loved ones could hear a message like this. You understand where a zombie is the wrong messenger. And the ghost is the wrong messenger. We who have the truth are the right messengers. And you could be the answer to someone's prayer. That someone please tell my loved ones. 
Hell is a real place. Someone please tell my loved ones that they don't want to come here. Someone tell my loved ones that they could avoid this if they would just accept Christ. We are the right messengers. So dear friend, let me ask you a couple simple questions. First of all, do you know without a doubt from the Bible that you're forgiven of your sins? Have you accepted that gift of salvation? Do you know for sure that you're going to heaven? If not, let me tell you the good news is, dear friend, we'd love to take the Bible and to show you from an open Bible how you can know without a doubt that your sins are forgiven. If you do know Jesus Christ is your Savior, you understand what a powerful request that was for the rich man. Can I get someone to go tell my family that heaven's real and that hell is real? Can I get someone to go tell my family the truth? Can please someone deliver the good news to them? You can be the answer to someone's prayer. Someone begging, please go tell my family the truth. You understand that you have a responsibility. A dead person is the wrong messenger. But you could be the right messenger. Who have you been delivering the message to? When's the last time you passed out a track? Have you been involved in passing out John and Romans? Have you invited people to church? Have you done what you can to tell them the truth? You have a responsibility. Why? Because hell is a real place. And real people go there. And it's an awful doctrine. And I wish it wasn't true. But because the Bible says it's true. I have to believe it's true. And may I tell you that belief affects behavior. If you truly believed real people were going to hell, you would do everything you could to get them not to go. If you believed the person that, that checked you out at the grocery store was going to hell, wouldn't you at least give them a track? Wouldn't you do something? That waitress who served you, wouldn't you do anything you could to tell her if you believed that she could go to hell? What about a family member? If you knew that a family member was going to that awful place, wouldn't you do anything and everything for them to know that they didn't have to go there? Wouldn't you beg and plead and cry to God, God, do something to change their eternal destination? Lord, would you do something to change their heart? Lord, would you do something to make them listen? Because hell is a real place and I don't want them to go to that awful place. Perhaps we need to do a little bit of begging on ourselves. The Bible says in Psalm 126, 5 and 6, They that sow in tears shall reap with joy. They that goeth forth bearing precious seed shall doubtless come again rejoicing, bringing their sheaves with them. Maybe one of our problems as Christians is that we don't do enough begging while we have the chance. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time 
to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920-530-6308. Once again, that number is 920-530-6308. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.